The Bob Murphy Show, episode 202. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show in this one, I'm going to start a three-part series. So I'm not sure right now if it's going to be episodes 202, 203, and 204. I might, you know, depending on if I do an interview with somebody that's very timely, I might squeeze that in. But for sure, this is going to be a three-part series entitled, What Did Bob Learn? And uh, this was recommended, I think it was someone from the Bob Murphy Show's private supporters group that's now on MeWe. I had just been asking people for topic ideas and someone said something like, it'd be interesting, Bob, if you went through some areas where you've changed your mind over the years. So that's what I'm going to do in this three-part series because, yeah, it is a good suggestion because it allows me to give both sides of an issue and I think it's a nice way to motivate me teaching some economics. But also, I'm not just going to talk about economics, all right? So I'll try to intersperse it. So it'll be mostly economic stuff. But I also will throw in some other things where my current vantage point makes me look at the world differently from how I did 20 years ago, let's say. And you might be interested in some of this stuff. All right. So first of all, let me start with international trade. So here, let me, I, I've said this in several places when I write on this, but let me just emphasize again, the way that Mises, Rothbard, Henry Hazlitt, like if you're coming to economics from primarily an Austro-Libertarian, especially in the United States context, tradition, and those are the types of people you've been reading, I don't think there's anything false that you're going to encounter, right? So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. However, it's not as detailed, some of the treatments, as you would find in certain Chicago school approaches, particularly for people who are versed in the work of uh, Robert Mundell, all right? And I'm going to, in the links to this, so again, folks, right now you're listening to bobmurphyshow.com slash 202 to find the links on this episode. So I'll, I recently wrote on Mundell because he passed away and uh, some of his stuff that I critiqued it from an Austrian perspective, but I can at least give you his background there in the link. But specifically, the extra detail is there's, in addition to what's called the trade deficit, there's also a current account deficit, and that's a broader category, all right? So when you're thinking of a trade deficit, you know, what does that mean? That, oh, like if it's between two countries that, let's say the U.S. has a trade deficit with China, what does that mean? It means that Americans are spending more dollars buying imports from China than the Chinese are spending dollars, you know, converting the transactions into dollar amounts, than they're spending on imports into China from the United States. So that's what a trade deficit is, okay. And, and when we say import there, of course, what we mean are goods, and I got in services, technically you could do that too. 
if somebody goes to Disney World, if a Chinese tourist goes to Disney World and spends money there, then I believe they construe that as a U.S. export to China. But we don't mean stuff like, oh, what if somebody in China bought a factory that's located in Cincinnati? It's not that they imported a factory, right? So just keep that in mind. This is now where we start getting into the subtleties. And so in terms of the trade accounting and things, a trade deficit per se is not even prima facie the thing that might be unsustainable. Okay, so normally in this tradition where just about everybody we're going to be talking about is going to be a free trader, most of the time is spent debunking worries about trade deficits. And again, I'm I'm not knocking that. That's all very important. And it's certainly the thing that the layperson needs to hear because they're going to have this knee-jerk reaction. Just the very term trade deficit sounds like it's a bad thing. And there's lots of arguments in the free market tradition to explain why it isn't. Just to rehash some of that. So for example, right now I have a trade deficit with Home Depot. That if you went through all the transactions between me and Home Depot over the last year, I end up importing a lot more stuff from Home Depot into my household than Home Depot imports into its enterprise from me. Or if you want to do it geographically, I have a huge trade deficit right now with the state of Florida because my parents live down there. And when I travel down there, I spend a bunch of money in Florida buying goods and services from Florida-based businesses. And not too many people in Florida pay me money for my services, right? So I have a huge trade deficit with Florida. And yet we see, who cares? That's an interesting bit of trivia that doesn't really mean anything. Who cares? So... Likewise, when you look at the national level, the mere fact that Americans spend more buying imports from China or Japan than vice versa, per se, that doesn't really mean much. Okay, but what I want to get at here is that there's another level of analysis where the trade deficit is really just a component in what's called the current account balance. And you could have a situation so where someone might not have a current account deficit but they have a trade deficit and that's not even prima facie unsustainable, right? Because the the concern is for somebody, you know, who's worried about the trade deficit, the idea is, well, geez, how can we just year after year be importing more from China than they are from us? Like at some point, aren't the chickens going to come home to roost? And what I'm saying is besides, you know, the normal arguments you would use against that, there's another subtlety that has to do with, again, what's called the current account balance. And so really even if you were going to be worried about something and about its sustainability, it wouldn't be the trade deficit. It would be the broader category of if you had what's called a current account deficit. And so just to motivate that, let's do it at the individual level. So just like, you know, I I showed you a minute ago, how do I really care if, if Robert Murphy has a trade deficit with the state of Florida? No, not really. Let me paint a different example where I could have a trade deficit with the whole world and I still would be fine. So let's say I have a million dollars in financial assets that in a typical year earn five, a 5% rate of return, right? You know, I have some stocks, I have some real estate, whatever. In an average year, it throws off 5% return. So that means every year I have $50,000 in income from my financial assets. And then I go out and I buy $50,000 worth of goods and services. You know, I buy food, I buy gasoline, clothes, blah, blah, blah. Right. So there you can see the way the trade accounting works. 
is I would have every year a $50,000 trade deficit with the rest of planet Earth. If we assume that I, I'm not working anymore, right? So I'm not selling any services to anybody and I'm not making anything in my garage and selling it to people, right? I'm just sitting back receiving dividend checks or um, like if, if my stock prices go up, maybe I sell off some of them such that every year I maintain, let's say, a million dollars market value of my financial assets and I get to consume $50,000 of goods and services without impairing my capital base. That's what it means in terms of the accounting to say I have $50,000 income for that period, right? So again, you can, so there you can see there's no danger of me sinking deeper and deeper into debt because I'm living above my means. Like, oh, gee, every year Bob keeps running this $50,000 trade deficit with the rest of planet Earth. How can he keep this up? And you can see that, no, I could keep this up indefinitely. I'm, I'm, I'm living within my means. I'm only consuming my income. I'm not engaging in dis-saving, right? So the analog of that now in terms of the international trade accounts is suppose Americans, when you look at all the financial assets that they own that are claims on the rest of earth, right? So on non-Americans, and then you do vice versa, and then you compute what the incomes that they yield are, then that's the way you come up with the current account, okay? And so if Americans' financial assets and the income they derive from it that are claimed in the rest of the world is whatever, I'm making these numbers up, I, was, I don't even know where it's, what's close, so I'll just pick up some number to keep the, the math simple, is $100 billion and the rest of the world's income that they earn from U.S. assets is $90 billion. And so there's a $10 billion discrepancy there and then the Americans also run a $10 billion trade deficit vis-a-vis -vis the rest of planet Earth, then the current account is balanced, right? So there's still a $10 billion trade deficit, but the current account balance is, is fine, right? That they're, quote, living within their means. And again, that's just like aggregating and extrapolating from the individual case that I walked through a minute ago, okay? So there is that sort of thing in the, the way the trade accounts are done. And so... Again, even on its own terms, a trade deficit is nothing to worry about, even if it were with respect to the rest of Earth, right? Because just to circle back a little bit, part of the reason when I earlier said, oh, gee, if Robert Murphy has a trade deficit with Florida or with Home Depot, who cares? Part of the reason it's fine is because I have a trade surplus with my employers or, or my customers. You know, if I'm doing consulting services for someone and they give me $10,000, then I have a $10,000 trade surplus with that particular person. And so in a given year or whatever the time period is, so long as my individual trade surpluses are bigger than my trade deficits, then you can clearly see that the particular trade deficit with Home Depot or the state of Florida doesn't mean anything or it's not a big deal. Okay. But what I'm saying now is even if when you add it up all across the board, I had a net trade deficit with the rest of planet earth, even that is not prima facie a cause for concern or to show, oh, gee, you're living above your means because of, you know, that early example where I showed, like, if you just, if you have net financial assets and the income they throw off, because that, again, that's not, you're not exporting goods and services if you're earning investment income, right? That's not the same as if you're working or if you're making physical things and selling them to people, right? Just the way the, the accounting works, okay? So that's, one level of like understanding. But now let me throw another curveball at you. More recently, in terms of my own evolution on this, this thinking, 
I have seen that the people typically on, you know, on the right, but conservative slash libertarian types who are big defenders of free trade, and in particular, when they were reacting against the rhetoric associated with the Trump administration and how there was a resurgence among people who used to be pretty staunch free traders that now a lot of them were having second thoughts because Trump was warning about China and blah, blah, blah. We're losing our lunch to China. And so in reaction to that, I noticed for the first time that some people in conservative and libertarian circles were saying things that were just false, okay, that they were taking a germ of truth in the standard centuries-old tradition of defending trade deficits as, as being innocuous or at least not necessarily necessarily a sign of disaster and they were saying things that were just flat out false so let me just give you one specific example and then i'll, I'll move on i don't want to get bogged down too much on this particular topic so uh back in 2018 in the wall street journal robert barrow had written a piece and uh you know criticizing trump and trump's theory about international trade and you know why his recommendations or his policies were, were wrong and and then here's what Barrow said. So this is a, an excerpt from the Wall Street Journal piece that Robert Barrow wrote. Simple economic reasoning, however, suggests that this logic, meaning Trump's, is backward. Imports are things we want, whether consumer goods, raw materials, or intermediate goods. Exports are the price we have to pay to get the imports. It would be great, in fact, if we could get more imports without having to pay for them through added exports. And that's, you know, Robert Barrow, right? So that's all true. And you can see how if Trump's up there complaining like, oh, we're buying everything from Japan and China, but they're not buying our stuff and we're going to fix that. You know, that's where Barrow was coming from is to say it's not a bad thing if foreigners are sending us goods and services. And it's not that, oh, the only reason it's fair if they send us goodies is because they allow us to send them goodies in return. Barrow's pointing out that, well, no, actually – if they would send us cars and TVs and whatever and not expect us to send anything in return, that would be the best deal of all. And yet the way Trump talks about it, they would really have us over a barrel and they would be, you know, uh, taking advantage of us if they just sent us stuff that they, their workers toiled away at all year and didn't expect us to send anything in return. Wow, what monsters they would be. And Barrel was saying, no, we, <laughs> that's what it would look like if, if we were exploiting them. Okay, so that's true insofar as it goes. But then... The the subheadline that this article was given by the Wall Street Journal editors is actually false. All right, and, and this is what I'm saying. So this is what they titled it. So the title they gave the article was Trump and China share a bad idea on trade. And then the, you know, like the little italicized subheadline says, imports are things we want and we pay for them with exports. Isn't getting more for less a good thing? Okay, and so... There, that's certainly, I mean, they don't literally come out and say it, but in the context of the article, what's going on there, you would certainly think that what they're saying is the trade deficit is a good thing and rather than Trump being right that trade deficits are bad. No, because imports are the things we want and we pay for them with exports. So isn't getting more for less a good thing, right? And again, because this whole article is talking about Trump railing against the US trade deficit. So there, no, I think at this point, for sure, the average reader is going to be misled. And I think even this Wall Street Journal editor was misled. Okay, so to be clear, Robert Barrow himself did not see anything false in the article. But I'm saying this mentality where you say, oh, no, far from being a sign of weakness or a concern, 
trade deficits, I mean, imports are the good things and exports are the bad things. So if you then conclude from that that a trade deficit is a good thing and that we're somehow ripping off China, that ha, 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 we tricked them. They're sending us all these cars and stuff and we're not sending them much in return. They're not buying too much of our wheat, ha, ha, sucker. No, that's totally wrong. All right, and one way to see it is to say, okay, if that were true, in other words, the zeal with which some of the free traders defend trade deficits and try to tell people how awesome they are, sometimes they go so far in their enthusiasm for them that it would lead you to believe, okay, actually a trade deficit is always a good thing and a trade surplus is a bad thing. And so instead of the interventionists going around to the countries that have trade deficits and saying, you guys should think about putting tariffs in place to protect your trade balances, instead, the interventionists should be going around to all the countries that have trade surpluses and saying, you guys are getting ripped off here. Don't you know that actually imports are the good things and exports are the cost? So if you really want to help your economy out, you want to increase the benefits and reduce the costs, which is what, you know, so you want to reduce your trade surplus. And no, that's wrong too. All right. If it's all voluntary in a free market, a trade deficit and a trade surplus per se are neither good nor bad, or at least you'd say they're good insofar as they reflect voluntary preferences and what people want. All right. But this idea that, oh, the trade deficit, no, stop thinking of it as a bad thing because imports are the things you want and exports are the things that are the cost. Okay. Because what's happening here, the mistake is, or the potential mistake or misunderstanding, right. If China would send us TVs and then say, you don't owe us anything in return, then that would be good for Americans. But then that wouldn't be a trade deficit. They would just be sending us the TVs for free. All right, so we wouldn't be spending billions on imports that then don't have a counterbalancing export dollar figure. But that's not what's happening. They are charging us money for those TVs or cars or whatever. And that's why the import side of the ledger has a big dollar figure. And then they're not buying as much measured in dollar terms from us in return. And so they are accumulating claims against Americans. All right, and... Again, it's technically it's the current account deficit that if Americans had more assets, that's the thing to worry about. All right, so it's not just the trade deficits, the current account deficit is the problem. So in terms of the accounting, the principle at work here is that current account deficit is necessarily matched by a capital account surplus. And I'll link folks. So again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 202. I'll link this to an article I did spelling all this stuff out if you want to see it more intricately. And even here, the defenders of trade deficits will just say, oh, it's okay if we have a current account deficit because that just means there's a capital account surplus. It just shows that foreigners want to invest in U.S. assets more than Americans want to invest in foreigners' assets. It just shows how safe and liquid and trustworthy, you know, the U.S. capital markets are. So if a bunch of people in China want to invest more in U.S. stocks or real estate than Americans want to invest in Chinese assets, the, the only way they can, quote, pay for that is if they send us goodies in return, right? Like, what, what, if, if on net, the Chinese want to invest more in U.S. stocks than Americans want to invest in Chinese-based stocks, well, we're not just going to let them acquire that ownership for nothing. They're going to have to send us something. And if, by stipulation, we don't want to hold more of their financial assets, like, oh, no, we've got enough Chinese stuff, thanks, the only thing they can send us then in return are goods and services, right? So they have to send us more cars than we send them wheat if at the same time, in the same accounting period, they want to acquire more shares of U.S. stock than vice versa. And again, with all this stuff, we're converting it to a, a common unit of 
you know, measuring market value, such as dollars, all right? So that's all true. But again, that sometimes the free traders, the U.S.-based free traders, make it sound like this is unambiguously necessarily a sign of our economic strength when, no, it could also be consistent with a sign of our profligacy. And again, with all this stuff, let me just take it back to an individual context. So it's true. If you had an individual who had a great idea for a new product, but he just, you know, he, he didn't have the, the financing for it. He said, oh my gosh, I just realized I, I have this new formula or this new approach. I can make a better mousetrap. I'm going to capture the market. But I, you know, I, I just, I'm out of my garage right now. I can't mass produce the thing. And you go around to some of your relatives and you get a million dollars of them to invest in your company. And then you, you know, start a little factory and, and start cranking the thing out. In that initial period, you're going to have a trade deficit with the rest of the world, right? You're going to be acquiring drill presses and assembly lines and buildings and blah, blah, blah. You're going to be getting workers to show up and, and sell you labor hours and you will not be selling a million dollars worth of mousetraps in that first period, all right? And that's totally fine that quote trade deficit is reflecting the fact that you have a great idea and that outsiders want to invest more in you than you want to invest in outsiders. And so your trade deficit there is a reflection of your economic strength in the prosperity that's just around the corner. So that's all true. But different scenario, some kid who is unemployed and wants to go get a car and he does that and buys it on credit. He goes on vacations, runs up his credit card bills you know, borrows money from his relatives, said, oh yeah, I'm down on my luck right now, but, you know, I'm trying to get a job and I'll pay you back once I get hired. And he's using, that's how he's going to the store and getting food and everything is from money he's borrowed from his relatives. He also would have a huge trade deficit with the rest of the world. He also would have a current account deficit. It's true that the rest of the world invested more in him than he invested in the rest of the world, right? Like his, the amount he owes Visa and MasterCard goes up as he's run up his credit card bills. So you could say, Visa and MasterCard invested in him, right? And his relatives who lent him money invested in him. But if somebody says, hey, you're living above your means and this is unsustainable and this is not healthy, you need to turn your situation around, that person is correct. The, the kid who's borrowing money from all his relatives and rump his credit card bills couldn't say, no, no, it's just a reflection of my economic strength. The fact that on net, the rest of planet Earth is investing more in me than vice versa this year, that, that just shows how much, how highly they think of my future prospect. Like you see, so same thing with the US. And this isn't just academic. I ran into this problem when I publicly was disagreeing with Peter Schiff back in like 2006 and 2007. And I'll link to some of the, that stuff, folks, at the show notes page, you want to see it, where he was saying some things about why trade deficits were bad. And I was just showing, well, no, hypothetically, they could be okay. But then I realized at some point before the crash happened, oh, wait a minute, no, in practice, these huge U.S. trade deficits lately are a sign of unsustainability. They're not merely a reflection of how great it is for foreigners to invest in the U.S. and how you know, deep and stable our financial sector is. So again, to be clear, theoretically, I was correct. And Peter was saying some things that were a bit too strong. But in practice, his assessment of the U.S. situation circa 2006, 2007 was right. Mine was initially wrong, but fortunately for me, I did realize it was wrong before the crash happened. So I did a mea culpa. And again, I'll, I'll link to all this stuff if you want to see exactly how it went down. So I knew 
or I believed that there was a big crash coming. I had a piece at Mises as of October 2007, right? So that was 11 months before the Lehman crisis where I said, worst recession in 25 years, question mark. And I used Austrian business cycle theory to argue we were going to have the worst crash since the early 80s. So that all was correct. But before that, I had been optimistic um, because I wasn't looking at Austrian stuff. I was just looking at the trade accounts, whatever. And I was making a pedantic point that, well, no, technically a hypothetical country that was a really great place to, for investors around the world to put their capital would run perpetual trade deficits and current account deficits. That's the way the accounting would work. And that's all true. But again, that doesn't mean that the flip is true, that if you have a country that is running a huge current account deficit and hence a capital account surplus, meaning foreigners are investing more in that country than vice versa, that per se does not prove that, oh, this country must be awesome and these people are booming and going to have prosperity around the corner. It could also be a sign that they're living way above their means and digging themselves into a huge debt hole. So on this stuff, I think the Bible has the right perspective that it says, you know, to the nation of Israel, you know, be a, be a lender to many nations and a borrower from none or words to that effect. And I actually think that's a, that's a very good perspective to have. Hey folks, let's take a break from the discussion to once again mention that the more you give, the more you get. I really appreciate all the contributions you folks have been sending and uh, feel free to do more. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to send more or to do it for the first time. If you're squeamish, it's really not that hard. You can do it. Also, for those of you who can't contribute financially, what you can do instead of that is anytime I have an episode that you think might be something your friends or coworkers would want to listen to or even just to challenge them, go ahead and send it along. That's the way we grow. Thanks for listening, everybody. And now let's get back to the show. Okay. Let's see. Since I just mentioned the Bible, let me go ahead and... Oh, well, let me say one last quick thing too on the Peter Schiff thing. What was funny is years after that happened, there was somebody who was guest hosting Peter Schiff's show. And it wasn't Tom Woods. I don't remember what the guy's name was. But he was a guest host and he was trying to, you know, get, get interesting topics to cover while he was hosting the show in Peter's absence. And so he, he emailed me ahead of time. He said, hey, I want to have you come on and talk about trade deficits and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, okay, sure thing. And, you know, this was after the crash happened and everything, the, you know, the 2008, 2009 meltdown and all that stuff. And so he gets me on the show and he starts quoting from articles I had written attacking Peter Schiff like circa 2006, 2007 before I had had my own mea culpa and, you know, and said, yeah, Peter was right. So, uh, and so, I, you know, so the guy's like, in other words, he brought me on thinking that was still my position and wanted to argue with me to say, yeah, see, wasn't Peter right on this stuff? And, you know, don't you realize that those trade? And so he's, you know, going and, and he said, you said this big, and I just said, yeah, right. I was totally wrong. And the guy was just floored. And he went, I, I, I've never heard an economist say that before. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just fun. Like, it, I think on the one hand, he was almost kind of miffed that, well, geez, I, I brought you on the show. Like, this just kind of ruined my half hour segment that I had in mind because now there's nothing to talk about because you're not going to sit here and argue what you used to believe in 2006. So anyway, it was kind of funny. Okay, so moving on, another area where I've changed my mind. I think it was in one of those psychological, you know, personality tests or something where this came up, but it, it was a question that said, do you think justice is more important than mercy? And it, was, it really struck me because I'm sure 
10 or 15 years ago, well, certainly when I was much younger, I would have said yes without even hesitating. I'm pretty sure I would have said, yeah, of course, justice is more important than mercy. And my reasoning would have been, I mean, justice is what it is. And so if you don't have justice, then it's injustice and you can't have that because it's, it's wrong. And so, you know, clearly justice has to trump anything else that you would never tolerate the lack of full justice in pursuit of some other objective, whether it's mercy or whatever, beauty or unicorns or convenience, what have you. That, that's the way I would, have, I would have thought about that. And so, like I said, when I was younger, I would have said, yes, justice is more important than mercy. And also, by the way, that's when I was an atheist is when I would have said that. But now that I understand the gospel much better than I did then, I would say, no, that's not true. So to be clear, I wouldn't say mercy is more important than justice. I would just say it is a false claim to say that justice is more important than mercy. And it's not because they conflict with each other. And it's like, oh, well, you kind of got to, you know, it's, you got to optimize and it's, uh, you know, there's trade-offs. No, it's not like that. It's that when you think through what justice is, mercy is necessarily tied up with it. So it's almost like it's a false dichotomy. And that's why it would be wrong to say justice is more important than mercy. And so specifically, and here I'm not saying anything profound. I mean, anytime you'd see a discussion on this, people would make these obvious points, but in case you've never heard it spelled out before. Imagine a judge who is merciless. Would that judge be just? And I think we can agree, no, it wouldn't be. Or put it to you differently, if you had two judges and one of them was merciless and one did have mercy or did you know, exercise mercy, at least occasionally, I don't think we would say that the first judge was more just than the second one, right? In fact, you would, you know, if you heard you were about to face a merciless judge, that would show that the person, you know, that would be an indication to you that they weren't actually just, that they were going to do things that you would think were wrong. That's why you would be afraid of the person. And even if it wasn't just you, if you heard that, oh yeah, this judge rendered a ruling about these defendants the other day and man, the guy was merciless when he let him have it, you know, that to you that the reason the person would say it like that is to show that actually injustice occurred, that we can agree the judge, it would have been better for the judge not to have ruled so harshly, all right? So it's an, like, again, like when you try to just compartmentalize it and say, is justice more important than mercy? Uh, you know, almost, it's almost a tautology that if you're saying, well, no, you're going to do what's, what's just. And so you could say those things are all built into the concept. And so if you're saying the judge was merciless and did something unjust, well, then aren't you saying technically he didn't pursue justice? But again, I'm, I'm saying let's because mercy is, is linked inextricably to the concept of justice. So you wouldn't be just if you were merciless. However, going the other way too, that if you di- had no standards whatsoever and you never were willing to tell someone what they had done was wrong and just, no, anything you want to do is fine. So in a sense, like, oh, you're totally merciful. That also wouldn't be just right? And mercy without justice actually isn't merciful. So, you know, so it kind of works all, all together that you're actually, you're not doing somebody a favor if no matter what the person does, you always, oh, no, I'm not here to judge you. Hey, hey, no. I mean, if you thought that was right, then it was right. You know, who, who am I to say? There's no standards. It's whatever you want, man. That it's not merely that you might think that, oh yeah, that's being nice to the person you're talking to and the person whose behavior you're excusing 
but it's allowing injustice to fester if they're going around robbing banks. I'm saying beyond that, which is true, you're not doing favors to the person you're saying that to. You're, you're allowing them to fester in error. And that's not good. That's not helping them. That's not merciful to them either. It's not loving to them. All right, so when Christians say that their God is both you know, a God of justice and mercy, you know, slow to anger, there's all sorts of ways that the Bible describes God. It's, it's a package deal. It's, it's, yes, those are all true statements, and we can focus on one at a time, but ultimately it's a package deal that God could not be infinitely just if he also wasn't infinitely merciful and vice versa, okay? So he's the pinnacle of all of these good attributes taken to the limit. And so, you know, that's why now if I'm asked, is justice more important than mercy? I would say, no, it is not. Okay, another area where my views changed so I remember in the, the 2000 election, so it was real close between George W. Bush and Al Gore, I went to bed that night when it was still up in the air and I was very worried that if Al Gore won, he was going to wreck the economy, All right? So that's kind of ironic when the housing bubble and meltdown occurred at the tail end of the Bush administration. And incidentally, you know, one could argue, well, wasn't that mostly the Fed's fault and not sure, but the Bush administration certainly did a heck of a lot of things to make that situation worse. But in any event, that's what I thought the issue was going to be at that time was like, oh yeah, who, you know, they're, they have other issues and things, but as an economist, because at that point I was in grad school at NYU, you know, what I can say for sure is, you know, the Bush administration would be good on economic stuff. And whereas Gore, this crazy environmentalist guy, he's going to do all kinds of wacky stuff and wreck the economy. So that was kind of funny. Likewise, let me just again tell you how naive I was, and it was not that long ago, in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq, you know, the one under W. Bush, not the first Gulf War, I remember thinking, so the Bush administration kept coming forward and presenting all this evidence that, you know, Iraq had WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, and that Saddam had to turn these things over and let in the UN inspectors and blah, 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 or else, you know, we were going to have to take action, that kind of thing. And I remember thinking, okay, here's going to be a test to see who are the bad guys on the international scene. And here's, here's the criterion I used at the time. I was like, if, if Saddam turns over his weapons and then the U.S. still ends up invading, then we're the aggressors. However, if Saddam doesn't turn over his weapons of mass destruction, well, then that's his own fault. And if the, you know, the U.S. invades, that doesn't mean we're the bad guys. Those were the two outcomes I had in mind. It never occurred to me, what if Saddam doesn't turn anything over, the U.S. invades, and they look around and say, huh, turns out maybe he didn't have those weapons after all. Well, anyway, now we got rid of a bad guy, and, and he, you know, he killed a lot of his own people and stuff, and now that we're here in the Middle East, women can go vote and stuff, so that's cool. That never occurred to me that that would happen, because at the time, I thought, and by the way, it's not because I put it past... Bush administration officials to lie. That's not the reason. The reason is, the reason I thought like that and didn't even occur to me to entertain the possibility that what if all this stuff the U.S. is saying about the overwhelming case for there being stockpiles of WMDs in, in Iraq, and that's why, we, you know, they better turn the stuff over or let inspectors come in, blah, 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 or else we got to invade. The reason I thought, surely that intelligence has to be basically correct is that if you invade another country, 
and it turns out that the reasons you gave for it are bogus, you would get in big trouble, right? <laughs> like, that's, like that's what I thought at this time. And so that's why I thought, well, that can't be what the answer, you know, that's, I don't got to worry about that kind of a scenario because just I just assumed, you know, the Bush administration would be completely discredited if not called upon war crimes or something. And that for sure, at the very least, George W. Bush would get trounced in his reelection campaign if he either knowingly spread lies or at least presided over all kinds of just wrong intelligence that led the U.S. to invade another country under false pretenses. Like, that's like the worst thing you could do as a political leader, right? And so I thought, surely you'd get crushed in the next election so they wouldn't be doing something so risky. And obviously, you know, what did you learn? By the way, the, where this, the title of this series is coming from is there was a, a Family Guy episode that I saw once where Stewie, like, you know, the baby with the English accent, is at a baseball game and he's, you know, in the, in the crowd with his mom or something. And they're sitting next to another family and there's like a little girl there and she has a, like one of those inflatable little baseball bats, you know, that they give to kids. And Stewie had something, I don't know what, like a ball, let's say. And he wants to trade with her and he says, hello, uh, how about I give you my ball and you give me your bat? And then again, the girl's like, okay, you know, because she's like just a dumb little kid, not <laughs> the savvy adult man in the baby body like Stewie is. And so she hands over the bat first before he gives her the ball and he takes the bat from her hand and then smacks her in the face with it and goes, what did you learn? So anyway, I always thought that was good. So that's on all these, the point is, what did I learn? Okay, um, then to round this out, let me tell you about Arrow's theorem and how my thinking has changed on that. So uh, the way... I first heard about it was Steve Landsberg in his book, The Armchair Economist, which is a great book, by the way. I'll, uh, I'll mention that uh, or I'll link to it in the show notes page. But he, he alludes to Arrow's theorem and he says something like, an arrow proved with the rigor of pure mathematics that you know there were inbuilt limits to the rationality of a voting system or, or something like that. I remember his exact phrase, but and I remember thinking, no, that can't be. How could you, something so messy in real world as voting systems and whether they approximate the general will or whatever. Come, come on, Steve, what do you mean you prove with mathematics? That's goofy. And, and so I just, I didn't believe him. I thought he was engaging in hyperbole and that, yeah, I know how these, these models that economists use of stuff are very simplistic. And, da, da, da. and then when I got, went to grad school and I was in a course where they actually proved Arrow's theorem, you know, it went, went, you know, it went through and did the actual proof of it. And so you could see how it worked. And I still didn't believe it. And in fact, I thought I came up with a counterexample. So, you know, the idea being, could you come up with a voting system that satisfies all of Arrow's theorems? So the, the way it works is it says um, the, the Arrow's theorem, and, and I'll put links in the show notes page, folks, to, you know, I've, I've written on this extensively. And I also teach about it in Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom. So I'll put all kinds of links on that stuff. But the gist of it is, Arrow said, okay, if you got a voting system where, you know, people have preferences over outcomes and given certain pretty basic assumptions, like there can't be a dictator, meaning there can't just be one person who, however that person ranks possible outcomes, that's what this the political system says is the answer there has to be transitivity, right? So if the political system says outcome A is preferred to outcome B and outcome B is preferred to outcome C, then it's got to be that outcome A is preferred to outcome C, right? Things like that. Another example would be what's called 
uh, weak Pareto optimality is the technical term, but says if every single person in society thinks A is better than B, then the political system has to spit out the answer that A is better than B. Stuff like that. Okay, so really weak, seemingly innocuous statements about these are the principles a good voting system would 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 uh, possess, right? Like if we had some kind of mechanism to translate individual citizens' preferences into what, quote, the general will is or the social will is, these are the attributes we would want a good system of translation to possess. And again, it's real simple stuff. Like I just said, like, again, there can't just be one person who, however that person feels about the different issues, that's what we say society thinks because then that person would be a dictator and we don't want that. But also it's got to be if every single person in society thinks that outcome A is better than outcome B, it better not be the case that our system for generating, quote, social preferences thinks that B is better than A. That would be crazy, right? So it's real basic stuff like that. And Arrow showed mathematically, formally, that there, there does not exist a system that obeys all of those criteria. And so the, the way you prove it, it's kind of neat, is you, you assume you have a system that satisfies everything else, and then you prove that there must exist a dictator. And so then it means, therefore, there can't be, exist a system that satisfies the other criteria and also doesn't have a dictator because the other criteria imply there must be a dictator, right? So that's the, the logic. Of the proof. But anyway, even though I saw that, I wasn't convinced by the proof. And I thought I came up with a counterexample of a, of a voting system that obeyed all of the other criteria and did not enshrine somebody as a dictator. And so then if my counterexample worked, that would mean obviously Arrow's theorem must be wrong because I came up with a counterexample. And I was so sure. And it was something like, I think I said for any, how did that work? I think it was something like for every thing you, you use what the individual people want. Eh, nah, it's, I'm not going to be able to come up with it. it. There was some way that I thought it was like using subjective preferences as a way to get around the problem. But I, right now I can't, it escapes me what, what my suggestion was for how do you, you know, what's the rule in other words that you use to determine whether um, society thinks A is better than B. I think, it was, I think it was something like I said, if everybody unanimously thinks A is better than B, then yes, society has to. And if there's a disagreement and then there was some way I, I came up with how you break the tie or not, not tie in terms of equal numerical, but how do you resolve the fact that there's non-unanimity? And it was like some kind of arbitrary thing, like you flip a coin or something. I, th I think it was something like that. And so I thought I had come up with a system, a procedure by which we could always answer the question, no matter what people's preferences were, that, you know, how do, how do we determine if society thinks A is better than B when all we have to work with are the individual citizens' views as to whether A is better than B? And I think, again, like I said, something like, well, if there's unanimity, go with that. And if not, then this is the way you solve it. And you know, and I ran through it and it looked like it satisfied all the criteria. You know, there wasn't a dictator for sure. And um, because, you know, the tiebreaker mechanism was if, if people had differences of opinion as to whether A was better than B, the solution was not always consult, you know, num citizen number 42's preferences and let him be the decider because then he would be the dictator, right? So that's not how it worked. I forget exactly how it was, but there was some way that I could you know, some rule that I use that you could solve and to say whether society thought A should be better than B, uh, where it didn't just always go to one person's, you know, so at any given time with any possible set of preferences for all the members of society, 
it was possible that any particular individual was not going to see his will reflected in the social ranking. So that's why there wasn't a dictator. And it also obeyed transitivity. It, it satisfied the weak Pareto principle, right? Because I had the rule that if everybody thinks A is better than B, then society has to, right? So that, that checked out. And so I thought it was a counterexample. I was like, no, see, this one works. And I even wrote it up and put it in my professor's, you know, they had like, I don't know if they called it mailbox, but you know, they had like a little, a little cubby hole or something out in the hallway at the, the you know, at NYU's building where each professor had his name on a, his or her name on a, you know, little tray and you could leave stuff in there. You know, if you turn in your homework or something. So I wrote a thing up saying, here's my counterexample to Harold Stearman. And I was on the train going home thinking I was awesome. And like, you know, this is going to go down in history that some grad student came up with a counterexample. Like that's how delusional I was. And the reason it's delusional folks, in case you don't get it, is because he literally proved it mathematically, right? So it's, it's not that there was going to be a mistake in the proof. The, the worst, you know, you could just say, well, the assumptions he made and the, the way he was going to structure the problem was contrived or, you know, was, didn't reflect reality or whatever. And, and that's certainly fine if you want to go down that road. But I actually thought the proof itself was flawed and that I'd come up with a counterexample within his own framework, which was crazy. But at the time, that's where I was coming from. So long story short, uh, it's, I realized while I was still away, you know, like that day or something later that, oh no, it, my example, I think it violated the independence of irrelevant alternatives assumption, which is, it's kind of hard. I'm not going to try to explain it right now because it's a little bit counterintuitive. I, I think that was the one that it violated. And so I was like, oh shoot. And so, um, fortunately I was able to rush back to NYU and pull that thing out of my professor's tray before he saw it and I didn't make a fool of myself. So that's, uh, and so now I'm of the opinion that when you get what Arrow's theorem is actually saying, it's incredibly, uh, it's, it's an incredibly powerful result. It's completely un- or non-intuitive or counterintuitive. And the, the way the story goes, I don't know if this is true or apocryphal, that Arrow himself, when he was working on this stuff, he didn't set out to prove that theorem. What he was doing is he was interested in the social choice literature and, you know, the various ways that we can try to map from individual subjective preferences to, you know, a, quote, social ranking or social preferences to try to come up with, you know, amalgamating individual viewpoints into a collective will or something like that. Like, he was interested in that issue. And people had known for more than 100 years, like, the problems with standard, like, like with majority rule and democracy, that doesn't work because you run into an intransitivity problem, right? That let's say there's three outcomes, you know, there's three possible candidates and you can have people the way they rank the candidates. Let's just say it's, you know, Trump, Clinton, and uh, Gary Johnson. And so if the first person says Trump, Clinton, Johnson, in terms of the rankings, you know, best, second best, third best, and then the next person does it, Clinton, Trump, Johnson, and the third person does it, Johnson, Trump, Clinton, or something. I might be mixing them up. But if you just cycle them through with just three people and three possible choices, you can come up with a way that if you then go ahead and just do it as head-to-head comparisons that you get intransitivity. That um, if it's, you know, Trump beats Clinton by a majority rule, but Clinton beats Johnson, and then Johnson beats Trump. All right, something like that. I don't know if that maps up with the example I just gave, but there's, if you just play with it, you can see, and I'll link to articles that spell it out here. All right, so again, just with something real simple, like just three choices and three voters, 
you can come up with a simple example of hypothetical preferences. So each voter's preferences are totally, quote, rational. There's nothing weird about the way they happen to rank the candidates. But you can come up with a thing where A is – that if you just use majority rule to determine what's, quote, the social preference or ranking, then it ends up being that A is preferred to B, B is preferred to C, and C is preferred to A. And that seems kind of crazy. Like, how can that be? And then beyond just, like, is it crazy or not conceptually, practically speaking, that's a problem – because then people can game the system that depending on what the elites want the outcome to be, they can arrange the order of the pairs of the, you know, of the, of the showdowns to knock out the, the choice they don't want early on to have them face, you know, the person that would beat them because down the road, if that person's still alive, then he might win the whole thing. Okay. So that's to avoid that kind of gamesmanship. That's why ideally you don't want a social choice mechanism to be vulnerable to intransitivity, all right? So anyway, Arrow knew all this stuff going into his research in the 50s. And the story goes that he was like, okay, well, there's all sorts of possible social mechanisms we could use to try to translate individual preferences into social rankings. So why don't I just come up with some criteria to eliminate the obviously crazy procedures? So for example... We want it to be the case that if every single person thinks A is better than B, well, then the, quote, social ranking had better say A is better than B, all right? So let's insist on that being a rule, right? And so he just went through and wrote out some things that he thought were obviously desirable attributes for a sensible, you know, just mechanism for translating individual preferences into social rankings. And then he realized after he wrote down just the real simple ones to weed out the obviously crazy candidates he was left with the empty set. He had just ruled out every possible mechanism. And then he went from, you know, just trying to organize the thing to saying, holy cow, everyone, look at this result. So that's, anyway, like I say, that, that's what he found. And it's pretty amazing when you understand exactly what he proved. Okay, I will wrap up this particular episode of What Did Bob Learn? Stay tuned for part two. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.